Welcome to Political Point of View on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. In this program, we talk with politicians of all types, of all sorts, from local government through to central government, and including aspiring candidates. Sit back and enjoy. Hello listeners, today is another day of a political point of view with Graham Priest, today's guest Simeon Brown, MP from Pakaranga in Auckland. Um, Simeon, what, what's new or interesting in your responsibilities? Anything exciting? Well, great to be with you uh, this morning. And um, look, it's been a really interesting time in Auckland over the last little while. We've been obviously locked down for the last 13 weeks. Um, but uh, I've been able to get down to Parliament again uh, this week now. Um, Trevor Mallard's allowed us back, which is good. Uh, so it's good to get back into this. There's a lot happening in the law and order space, uh, which I'm heavily involved with. Unfortunately, we're seeing uh, more firearm violence on our streets, uh, and that's a significant concern for many New Zealanders. Uh, and so that's a big, big focus of mine at the moment. Right, well, that's actually something that I was going to bring up. There seems to have been a sudden upsurge in um, gun violence. That's right. In the past two weeks, we've seen a significant amount of, of um, firearm violence, um, particularly in Auckland uh, and in Christchurch. We've seen two individuals killed um, through firearm violence, one in Auckland and, 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 and tragically a, a young 16-year-old, I think it was, um, down in Christchurch. Look, this is of serious concern to many New Zealanders, and um, we need to see uh, some really firm action taken on uh, by the government. We've seen the government spend a lot of time and energy to take guns off law-abiding citizens, but uh, has spent very little energy actually trying to take guns off people who are uh, either gang members or, or should or illegally, illegally have firearms. So what, what do you put this upsurge to? Well, look, I think what we've seen is in recent years we've seen um, increased gang violence, um, gang memberships up 53%. Um, they're becoming less afraid to perpetrate that violence on our streets. Uh, that's certainly one of the things that's uh, of significant concern. Uh, I also think we're, um, you know, I think there's, a, there's increased tension in our community at the moment, uh, and that's something which is of, of, of significant concern as well. Do you think it could be a um, carryover from somewhat more hardened criminals being exported from Australia to here? Look, I think what you see is the vast majority of gang members are people who are New Zealanders. They aren't ex-Australians um, who have been deported here. Uh, most of them are New Zealanders. I think it's about 2% of people on the national gang list are actually have a, a, a deportees from Australia. So the reality is uh, we've had a situation where gangs have been able to flourish in New Zealand in the last few years, uh, and the police haven't been able to keep on top of that because they haven't been given the tools or resources uh, to be able to do that job. Yeah, I noticed um, recently there was a very large gathering of mongrel mob members in Porirua. Now, this surely can't be legal to have that number of people gather, is it? Look, you, you see there's one rule for everyone and there's another rule for the gangs under this current government. And we've seen that with a number of recent gang gatherings. And there was a funeral in Porirua. There's been a couple of those recently um, of gang members where they've um, taken over the streets with hundreds of cars both sides of the road, um, which is um, something which I think a lot of people sort of see as just lawlessness which is being allowed to happen. 
Uh, but there's also a recent gathering just this past weekend. There's a celebration for the Nungra mob. They were celebrating one of their chapters. Uh, and, you know, the police put out a statement saying they were pleased with how the gang behaved, um, despite the fact that they arrested seven people uh, and put out 65 infringement notices for traffic offences. Uh, that's not something I'd be pleased about. I think that's pretty shocking. Uh, you know, most gatherings don't end up with seven people being arrested and dozens of traffic infringements being issued. Uh, that's not something I'd be pleased about, and I think that's a, that shows the police the police sort of sending the very wrong messages they should not be sending. Well, it seems to me that it's if you're not allowed to have very many people at a wedding or a funeral, that it's illogical to allow a large number of um, mongrel mob members to gather for a celebration. Well, that's right, and you saw recently one of the one of their gatherings. They also had. Um, there was a notice, note put out saying that um, people who attended should test and have be tested for COVID. Um, and what we've seen in recent times is how COVID has been spreading through gangs and they've been spreading that through the country. Um, I mean, look, the reality is that you know COVID will be travelling through New Zealand uh, over coming months. We all have to be ready, um, get vaccinated and be prepared. But uh, the fact that there are rules, uh, there's laws in place, and these guys seem to have the ability to keep getting around them is something which most New Zealanders find quite quite uh, unbelievable. It seems also that there doesn't seem any attempt to control the numbers at, at gatherings like we've seen recently in Auckland and, and in Wellington and in Christchurch where mm. um, there's been very large numbers of people protesting. That's right. And look, I think you know there's um, been some significantly significant protests in recent days around uh, vaccine mandates and vaccine passports. Um, and, and, you know, look, there's been thousands of people protesting in these, these um, protests. I uh, didn't do note they, they, they changed tact on the weekend and decided that instead of protesting in large gatherings, they would uh, block the roads instead, uh, which I guess is less of a risk of spreading COVID, uh, but it uh, also creates its own form of inconvenience. But uh, that's and, totally um, illegal, isn't it? Well, it's, uh, you know, the... the, the <laughs> I guess there's a right to protest, um, but they've also got to follow the road rules. And, um, you know, obviously the groundswell people did something similar a couple of months ago um, when they ran their tractors through our cities. Um, I guess the reality is people protest in a variety of ways. Um, and uh, But, you know, blocking roads, blocking streets, not letting other people through, um, certainly that's something which is um, not allowable. So... Um, you know, this is this is the this is the world we're in at the moment, where, where there's, a, there's certainly um, significant concern around some of the things this government's doing, and um, people uh, obviously expressing their views in interesting ways. Is the problem a lack of will by the police or a lack of staff? Well, look, I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, the reality is um, when you've got thousands of people, um, obviously, you, you, you know, it, it's a difficult one to to address, um, but also, you know, 500 police officers are currently working in our MIQ facilities or at the boundary around Auckland, um, and so that's, a, that's about 5% of our front, of our cops in New Zealand are currently uh, focused on those two tasks. Um, so that's a significant amount of police resource, and, you know, at the same time, they've got to go to serious violent offences and sexual assaults and mental health call-outs and you name it. Uh, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of crime happening as well, so... Our police are enormously stretched at the moment. Mm, right, uh, we'll, we'll come back to MIQ shortly. Uh, 
some of the MPs I see are requiring extra security. What's the background to that? Look, I think there's been a few threats coming through uh, in regards to the um, the vaccination issues in recent times, um, and that sort of raised a few concerns. Um, I think the reality is it's a uh, you know I've had my own threats recently in terms of um, you know gangs having a go at me as well, uh, and you know and that means that you know you do have to relook at your security and making sure that you're able to get the right support. Um, and so, you know, that's something which I think is important and something which should be taken seriously. Uh, I think, you know, no, no, no one in New Zealand um, deserves to be threatened. Uh, and that's something which, you know, I think we should be able to live um, peacefully in New Zealand as a peaceful country. That's so it is uh, something which, um, you know, it's not... I always say, I always say look, like I'm, I'm just another New Zealander. Look, I, I do have a, a public role um, which will attract more attention. Um, but also, you know, there's everyday New Zealanders out there who also need to know that the police are there to support them and help them. New Zealand's got a, a very good history of politicians being available to the public, mm. which doesn't happen in other countries. Okay. Uh, uh, and the ability for a small station like ours to be able to talk to quite a number of MPs is really mm. quite a privilege. And again, it doesn't happen in other countries. Um, you're lucky if you get to talk to a press secretary or some other minor minion. Uh, changes to MIQ. Um, do you think it's long overdue or it's gone far enough or not far oh, enough? Look, or? MIQ was a good idea last year. In fact, the National Party campaigned to have it brought into place. I mean, you might remember when COVID-19 first was happening and we shut our borders people were still travelling into New Zealand and going straight home uh, and, and isolating at home. And there was obviously significant concern because that kept the community transmission going. And so we campaigned to get MIQ put into place. The government was slow at putting it into place. I don't think it was until mid, uh, mid-April, uh, which is about a month into our lockdown, until when it actually happened. Uh, but, of course, you know, we're in a different world now. We've got COVID in our community. The purpose of MIQ is to keep COVID out. Uh, now in our community... There's about 35 people in MIQ from overseas who've got COVID, but there's 3,000 New Zealanders with COVID isolating at home. So it makes absolutely no sense to try to keep it out when it's already here. And so we're just saying, look, let people in uh, who've been double vaccinated and a negative test, they, they pose less risk than uh, just, you know, everyday New Zealanders with COVID. It's, um, it's already here. Uh, and it's become a misery for so many people trying to reconnect with family and friends or for us to be able to get those skilled workers into New Zealand, which are so much needed in so many areas. And, of course, it's a hugely expensive operation. Oh, it costs you know, millions and millions of dollars. And as you might have seen yesterday, uh, the government's not even invoicing people properly to get some of that money back from the individuals who are going through it. So, look, it's, it's, it's had its time, and it's time to go. Actually, that was one of the questions that I was going to bring up to do with MIQ, uh, the alarming number of people that haven't been haven't been billed, and there doesn't seem to be any realisation of exactly how much money is involved. Yeah, well, look, it, it, it just shows the... I mean, I don't know anywhere in the world where you can stay in a hotel and, and not get sent a bill or have a credit card detail taken before you arrive, or on arrival. Uh, look, I just think, you know, the government's job is not... Uh, they don't know how to run hotels. Um, and so it's time that they exited the business. 
Right, so you, you would consider that it's time just to simply ding MIQ altogether? Yeah, look, there will be a need for a small amount of MIQ, and that will be for um, you know, those New Zealanders overseas who want to return home who aren't vaccinated. There will be a small number who aren't uh, who want to return. Your New Zealanders overseas have a right to return home. Um, and then there'll be uh, people returning from high-risk countries. Uh, and so, look, there'll, there'll be a need for a small amount of MIQ. We have mm. said, look, maybe let's build a purpose-built one so we're not relying on um, hotels. Uh, as we open up, those hotels we needed again for, for other purposes. And so it's important that the government may need to set up its own purpose-built MIQ, uh, which they can manage for, for those people coming from high-risk countries or who aren't vaccinated, um, but that, that that could be um, maintained in that way. Then, of course, it'll allow the defence force and the and the police force to get back to their normal job. Correct. That's right. That's right. Um, vaccine passports. Um, mm. There's been a disaster already with people trying to download them. Mm. Um, so, how good an idea is it? Look, I think. Um, there's a need for vaccine passports, particularly for international travel. Um, that would be a requirement to have a, a proof of your vaccination. Uh, and, you know, domestically, look, we've said that the actual the actual real benefit domestically of a vaccine certificate is actually to encourage vaccination uh, on the way up. So uh, many countries have said, look, uh, around the world have said, look, we want you to get vaccinated. And if you get vaccinated... Uh, between you can go and do X, Y, and Z, whilst um, other people who aren't vaccinated yet can't, and that's been a great way to get those vaccine rates up real quickly. What we're doing in New Zealand is we're saying, uh, look, get vaccinated, and then once we get to the target, then you're going to need this to do all these other things. Um, and so we've sort of done it the, the other way round. Uh, and so, look, the reality is some businesses will want to um, just don't have vaccinated people come into their premises, uh, and that'll be their choice. Um, but the way the government is running it is by basically saying that, that this is this is, this is they're sort of mandating which businesses can operate with vaccinated people and which ones can't, and all these other rules and regulations. Because I think it's going to be very complicated uh, and challenging. And I think once we get to our vaccine targets, actually we should be um, allowing. And this is national view: is yep, give businesses that choice, allow them to make those decisions themselves. Um, but actually, um, we don't need to be... The government's role actually has to be to step back at some point as well. So provide the tools, but um, doesn't necessarily require government regulation and rules all right through that process. I see you in New Zealand's not going to allow unvaccinated people on their aeroplanes shortly. Oh, look, they've said that... You, if you, look, I think it's a very balanced decision by Air New Zealand. They've said if you are unvaccinated, you'll have to get a negative test, so they're not declining you to be able to travel. They're just saying that you'll have to get a negative test prior to travel, which, look, I think that's a very balanced approach. Uh, and actually, the National Party said, look, we need to get rapid antigen tests rolled out across New Zealand. Uh, it's something which uh, is needed. Uh, many other countries around the world, even Australia, you can buy rapid antigen tests down at your supermarket, which allow you to test yourself at home uh, before you go to work, before you go to school, uh, before you travel, and you can test yourself on a frequent basis. Uh, look, this is going to be part of life for vaccinated, unvaccinated people. We want to make sure we isolate people who are sick, reducing the spread. And the sooner we move to rapid antigen tests, the more 
uh, we can get back to a normal life. There seems to be a curious reluctance on the government to allow it. Look, I think what their, their reluctance is driven by the fact they don't want uh, people who aren't vaccinated to have an alternative. Um, but the reality is, um, you know, it, it's going to be a necessity uh, for many um, parts of society. The, yeah, vaccination will be important. It's a, it provides a base uh, line of protection, but actually, you know, uh, people who are vaccinated can still catch COVID. And it's going to be important that we're isolating people who are sick. And, um, and that's where rapid antigen tests are going to be really, really critical going, going forward. But also, if, if you do come into contact with someone who is COVID positive, uh, being able to get a really quick return result um, and frequent testing to ensure that we're identifying cases early will be critical. It's also critical to ensuring that we are providing treatments early because there's new treatments that are becoming available uh, and they're most effective when uh, people access them early on in their infection. That's how they have their, their, their most powerful impact at reducing hospitalisation. Yeah, but to do that, you've got to be able to have a rapid test, don't you? Correct, and currently they're illegal. Uh, and so we're saying make them legal, allow people to purchase them over the shelf in a supermarket at a pharmacy. Uh, these are going to be part of life for us all, so let's move there as quickly as possible. What do you think of the policy of um, not allowing non-vaccinated people to be employed in some areas? Look, we've supported uh, mandates in some areas. Um, ultimately, there needs to be clear health and safety uh, um, advice to, to, to show that that's needed. So, for example, obviously in healthcare around, particularly in work streams around where there's COVID-positive patients, uh, makes sense. Uh, we've supported it around teachers because there's obviously a risk to children who can't get vaccinated. Uh, and so, look, there's, um, there's some clear areas where it makes sense. Um, but ultimately, what we've been saying is it should be up to businesses to make those decisions for their staff um, based upon good health and safety advice um, rather than you know, the government coming in and mandating it for everybody. Um, that's, that's sort of where we'd like to see these decisions. We, the government's role in this is to provide the tools for people and for businesses uh, and then let people work out how they want to operate um, using those tools. How do you feel about the result of the latest um, polls? Oh, look, I think it's a very clear message that New Zealanders are being frustrated with the lack of... Uh, direction from this government, the lack of decisiveness around key decisions, particularly in Auckland around the lockdown and opening up again. You know, Labor's very good at locking us down, very hard at lock, very bad at unlocking us. And so I think that's reflected in the polls. I think there's, you know, it's positive to see from our perspective that we've, we're, we're increasing our support. Uh, we've obviously got more work to do, um, but we need to stay focused on the issues which matter, which is, you know, reopening New Zealand, reconnecting with the world. Uh, getting our schools back open and, and making sure that we have an economy which provides opportunities for all New Zealanders. That has to be our priority and we have to keep talking about that every single day. So how comfortable is the party with um, the leadership? Well, I'm very comfortable with Judith Collins. I think she's, she's obviously a very formidable politician and um, she's someone who has uh, a strong record uh, in government, particularly in law and order and other areas. And we're completely behind her uh, because we need to be focused on the issues which matter. You know, voters out there want us to be their voice uh, and campaign advocate for them. Uh, they don't want us to be uh, fighting and sniping each other. So what do you put the rise in popularity for David Seymour? 
look, I think um, well, obviously he's a, he's, a, he's an effective politician and he's someone who's working very hard. But ultimately, the only way you can change the government is through voting for the national party. Um, and that's what we're going to be talking about is saying, you know, if you want to change the government, you have to vote for the national party. Uh, because that's how we, we get New Zealand um, open, uh, get people back to school, get our businesses reopened, reconnect with the world. We're, that's our priority. Uh, talking about uncl- uh, getting, making things more open and free, what bright ideas have you got for unclogging both Auckland and Wellington traffic? Oh, look, we, we, we've got a lot of ideas around, uh, around our transport system. Um, you know, the interesting thing we've got at the moment is we've got a government which hasn't started one single major transport project since they got elected four years ago. Uh, we've had, um, you know, you think about all the major transport projects which are underway. Um, you know, Transmission Gully down here in Wellington. Uh, you've got the Central Rail Link up in Auckland. Um, you've got uh, other infrastructure connections being built. Uh, but all of this was started under the last national government. Um, but we need to we need to have a, a government which is actually focused on building stuff, not about talking about building stuff. You know, down in Wellington, we've got the Let's, Let's, Let's Get Wellington Moving, which has been the slowest moving talk fest that I've seen. Hmm. and uh, It's more like constipation, nothing. isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, even constipation moves a bit faster than this project. Uh, and so we, 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 we'd say, look, let's build some stuff. We had a very big package at the last election around what we'd be building. Um, Auckland is like the east-west link, Penlink to the north, uh, connecting Auckland with uh, Whangarei and then, and then focusing on the, the Golden Triangle down to Hamilton and Tauranga. Uh, and then it's in Wellington, it's, it's, it's getting those expressways built north uh, through to Levin. So, look, there's a lot which needs to be done, uh, you know, but it's not just roads. Uh, it's also better rail connections, but also you've got to look at, look at, look at other infrastructures such as ultra-fast broadband. Uh, we need that rolled out properly through our rural communities. Ultra-fast broadband has been what's kept New Zealand's economy going whilst we've been in lockdown. And uh, if we hadn't built that when we were last in government, uh, this, these lockdowns would have cost New Zealanders a lot, lot more. And so we have to be focused on getting that, that rollout um, completed. And there's going to be a curly one come up in the, ne- in the future when Australia takes delivery of nuclear-powered subs. What's going to be the government's policy, do you think, on allowing nuclear-powered vessels into our water? Well, look, I mean, the New Zealand policy on that's very clear and I think quite settled at, um, at this stage, which is that, you know, we haven't accepted nuclear-powered uh, vessels into New Zealand. And so, uh, look, I don't think that's an immediate question which needs to be answered because I don't think those subs are going to be delivered to Australia until midway through next decade, in the mid-2030s. Um, but, you know, obviously Australia has is going down that track to have nuclear-powered Submarines are thinking very carefully around their strategic, uh, you know, role in, in, in the South Pacific, um, and so they're obviously making some big decisions around all of that. But if the New Zealand government is not going to allow them in, it's going to cause somewhat of a strain, I believe. Yeah, I mean, it could do. I mean, that's, that's obviously, um, you know, the Australians don't just won't just have nuclear subs; they have their, their other traditional subs as well. Um, but look, those are those are issues which. Um, will have to be, I guess, dealt with closer to the time. Is it time to rethink our nuclear policy? 
Well, that's not national par- not national party policy uh, at the stage to, to rethink that. Um, we've we've been quite clear on that in the past. It could be political suicide, of course, but these things need looking at every now and again, don't they? Mm. What's going to come out of the Glasgow um, conference about climate change? Well, look, I mean, I think you're fine with most of these conferences. You have tens of thousands of people flying private jets around the world emitting huge amounts of carbon, um, and they have a lovely chat and nothing much happens, and I think that pretty much sums up what's happened again. Uh, you know, the reality is until, until you have the big countries actually agreeing on doing some stuff, uh, you're not going to actually get much happening in this space other than um, another conference next year, which I think they're all looking forward to already, um, flying off and jetting there again. Do um, you think this... You know, I thought it was quite ironic that the Green Party co-leader wasn't prepared to go to Parliament during Level 4, but he was prepared to fly to Glasgow where there's tonnes of COVID. Uh, so, you know, if they couldn't do that on Zoom during a pandemic, it's quite, fasc- quite fascinating. It is going to be quite interesting because India's already said that they're not they can't get rid of coal for power no. generation unless they come up with trillions of dollars from somewhere to um, to fund an alternate source. Look that's and the, right and the reality is I mean uh, you know this, this is where we've been saying actually transitionary fuels are going to be important uh, and so for example um, tr- shifting from coal to natural gas reduces emissions in half. That's really important. We're actually importing a ton, you know, more, more coal than we've imported for a long time to generate um, electricity because we haven't been, government hasn't been supporting the, uh, the, the finding of new oil fields in recent years. And so, you know, that's actually meaning we're emitting more uh, when actually we could be emitting less using a, using a different type of fuel which, re- which reduces, reduces our carbon footprint. We also have to look at te- we have to look at other technological solutions. You know, there's there's new developments happening in the biodiversity space around uh, types of grass which help cows produce less methane. So there's a lot of technology which um, is being developed to help reduce our carbon emissions, and we want to be supporting technology to do that, uh, which means we can maintain our standard of living, uh, maintain our place in the world in terms of food production, uh, whilst also at the same time reducing our reducing our greenhouse gases. So that's where the National Party's position has always been, look, we need to do this in a balanced way, and we need to use technology rather than taxes to make those changes. But there's a policy to not allow genetically modified uh, right. And we said that needs to be re-looked at. We, we said that clearly needs to be re-looked at because there are new developments coming which actually will help us fight climate change, and we think we need to be on that, on the right side of that. So do you think it's time that that policy was re-looked at? Absolutely, absolutely. I think the, you know, the technological benefits will mean we can fight climate change in different ways using technology, and we need to be on the right side of that. Right, so how do you think the Green Party will uh, accept that? Well, it's a bit of a conundrum for them, isn't it? Uh, on one side, they want to fight climate change, but on the other side, they don't want to use um, technology to do so, which I think is... Um, will put them in a very awkward position. Uh, you know, I'd rather be on the side of technology. Well, really, if you look at it, um, selective breeding is only genetic modification, isn't it? That's right, exactly. And it's absolutely no different. And a, a cattle beast of um, mm. 
the year 2021 is a totally different animal from what it was in 1700. The only exactly. the only similarity really is that it has four legs ahead and a, uh, a deposit <laughs> left behind. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Hmm. Okay, Simeon, uh, anything else that you'd like to bring up? Well, look, no, it's been great to chat. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. I really appreciate your time as well. I understand that you're a pretty busy fellow. This has been another session of A Political Point of View with Graham Priest, today's guest, Simeon Brown, MP for Pakaranga in Auckland. Thank you for listening. You have been listening to Political Point of View on Coast Access Radio 104.7 FM. In this programme, we've talked with politicians of all types, of all sorts, from local government through to central government and including aspiring candidates. This programme is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.